in a little while the full moon will be rising. We have a beautiful clear sky tonight. Might be worth checking out the the full moon of May is is uh, the day that's traditionally celebrated as the uh, day of the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and death, or all three. Uh, it's the Vesak or Visaka. Is my mic on? Oh. It's on. Thank you. There's mindfulness at work there. I just wasn't mindful of the microphone. <laughs> uh, that's probably a little better. Um, anyway, full moon tonight. So it's Vesak and celebrated as the Buddha's, uh, the day of the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and Mahaparinibbana. And in, uh, in the Theravada of Buddhist countries, at least, probably in others, this is a, a big holiday. And if we were at the Shwedagon Pagoda tonight in, in Rangoon, it would be jam-packed and really, yeah, it's a great place anyway, but it would be very vibrant and full of life. And people would go to the temples and to the monasteries and meditation centers and make offerings and take the precepts like we just did. And uh, there would be special Dhamma talks and the shrines would have been cleaned with fresh flowers and offerings. It's quite a lovely time to be in those places. While I was working on putting this talk together, I was... Uh, thinking back to the time, it's about oh, more than 15 years ago, probably 17 years or so ago now, when I first went on pilgrimage to the, the Buddhist holy sites in India. And uh, I had just finished reading a book by Thich Nhat Hanh called Old Path, White Clouds, which is kind of a lovely account of the life of the Buddha. Some of you have probably read it. And so I had a lot of the stories from that book in fresh in my mind. And that year I went first to uh, the town of Rajgir. It was known as Rajagaha at the time of the Buddha. And it was the capital city of the kingdom of Magadha. And King Bimbisara was the, the king of that region. And it was his capital city. And I had it in mind, I remember, I, I had it in mind that I would walk from there to Bodh Gaya uh, this romantic notion that I would arrive on foot as a true pilgrim uh, would have been several days, I think, to walk it. And uh, I did let go of that plan fairly quickly when I was informed that the area was famous for its dacoits, its highwaymen and robbers, and I would be lucky to survive, but certainly wouldn't arrive with any of my things if I did arrive in one piece. Um, some of you might have read, there's an account by Ajahn Suchito and his friend Nick Scott, a book called Rude Awakenings, of a pilgrimage they did in India. And they were uh, set upon by robbers in that area. And they took, um, you know, Ajahn Suchito, he's a monk, he doesn't have much, but they took everything but his lower cloth, took his alms bowl and, you know, his robes. <laughs> And at one point, he was, someone was brandishing a, a large blade like a machete, um, threatening him, and he, he offered them his head. 
and apparently that was enough to convince them they should leave him alone. <laughs> so anyway, I digress. But it was very inspiring for me to, to visit these places where the Buddha and his disciples had lived and walked. And, you know, in Rajgir, nowadays you can still see the ancient city walls are there. And there's a lovely park, which is said to be the site of the bamboo grove and the squirrel sanctuary, it was called, uh, there. And the outside of town is the vulture peak, the Gridakuda hill. And there's a low platform of stone and brick foundation that is said to be the ruins of the Buddha's kuti there. And uh, I used to walk out. I was staying at the Burmese Vihara in Rajgir, and I would get up every morning in the dark and walk, oh, 45 minutes to an hour out to this hill, which is famous in the suttas, the, the vulture peak. I, my goal was to get there for the sunrise. And it was really scary because my head was full of bands of robbers waiting to <laughs> to attack me along the road. But I did it every morning for about a week. And every day when I got there, there was a monk uh, sitting meditating who who beat me there. Sometimes I thought maybe he stayed there all night. And I would join him. He would be sitting in meditation and I would join him sitting there. And there was this timeless quality to that place. And it felt as if the Buddha had had just gotten up and uh, had just been there. And often, you know, if we think, when we think of the Buddha, if we, if we even do very much at all, he takes on this kind of mythical, godlike quality in some ways. And there are statues like this one here in the hall that are, are stylized and quite generic in a way. And, uh, Sometimes we, we lose sight of the fact that this was a person who, who lived and, and uh, taught and wandered about in India almost 2,600 years ago. It's interesting, there were no statues of the Buddha in India until the Greeks came. And the earliest statues you see are, look a lot like the god Apollo in, in the Greek statuary. And, uh, the Greeks came and said, you have no statues of your god. You, you should make them. And so they look like quite Greek, the earliest ones. And prior to that time, he was represented as an empty seat or a pair of footprints. And you still see this image of footprints in, in Theravada countries these days as a way of representing the Buddha. But we get pretty far away from that time, and it seems like his life seems like a fable or a myth, some kind of teaching story. But, you know, he was a real person who wandered around and had his joys and sorrows and happiness and struggles like any of us might. And I like to reflect on this because it's inspiring to me to think, you know, well, I'm a real, I'm a person wandering around too, and, you know, this realization that the Buddha had is possible for us as humans. And we have these teachings that he left us. And most of what we know about his life is found from brief descriptions in the suttas and some in the Vinaya Pitaka, the, the collection of uh, the rules for the monks and nuns. And there are some stories in there 
the suttas, most all of them begin with these words, evam me suttam, evam me suttam, thus I have heard. And then they'll say something like this, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindaka's park. And then it will go on and say maybe who was there and, and what the occasion was, someone asking a question perhaps, or, or some person paying a visit. And so there's some sense of, of the time and the place from that. And you know, then someone like Ananda usually was memorizing what the Buddha said. And then over centuries, people chanting these suttas to keep them alive. Nothing was written down for quite a while. So the story of the Buddha's life can be seen in a couple of ways. It's, it's the story of a real person and points to the possibility of this realization for us as well. And there's also a quality of, of an allegory, of an archetypal story of a spiritual journey that's there in, in the story of his life. So tonight I'd like to talk about the life of the Buddha, at least up to the time of his first discourse. And uh, that's, hopefully I can get that far and explore some of the ways that his life and his journey can relate to our own lives and our own path as we follow in his footsteps. So he was born in northern India near the foothills of the Himalayas in, in what is now southern Nepal, right near the border of India and Nepal in the city of uh, Kapilavattu, which was the capital city of the Sakyan clan. And his father was named King Sudodana, and his mother, Queen Maya, was the daughter of the king of a neighboring region of the Kolian clan, so it was a marriage of, of alliance to some extent. And Maya moved to Kapilavatu uh, when she was married, and at, after some time when she became pregnant and the time of her birth was, of giving birth was getting close, she set off for her parents' home, which would be customary at that time. Uh, to give birth at her parents' home. And it said that en route uh, there that she stopped to rest at a place called the Lumbini Garden. And while she was resting and admiring the garden, she reached up to pick a branch of a flowering rose apple tree. Rose apple trees figure prominently in the suttas in various places. And went into labor and gave birth under the tree there. And said that she died then seven days a week later after giving birth from the complications of the childbirth. And so the baby boy was raised by her sister, uh, Pajapati Gotami, who was uh, also conveniently was also married to the king, Sudadana. So she raised him as her, as her first child, and she later had other children. And this boy was named Siddhartha or Siddhatta in Pali which means one who accomplishes his aim or accomplishes his goal. And the young prince was raised in a lot of luxury. He had the best of everything. In his own words, he says, I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. And his father built three palaces for him, one for each of the, the seasons, for the hot season, the rainy season, and the cool season. And they, were, they had special lotus pools with lotuses of red and white and blue color. And 
he, he said that he's, he only used sandalwood incense from Benares and all of his cloth came from Benares, which was the finest cloth in India. It still is the finest cloth, comes from Benares. It's famous for its weaving, even today. And he had groups of minstrels with no men among them to entertain him. And, and his servants were given special food better than most people's servants and said that the king had been told by a, a sage at the time of the prince's birth that he would grow to be either a, <clears throat> a great leader, a great king, a great leader of, of the region, or he would become a great spiritual seeker and teacher. And the king didn't want him to, uh, he wanted him to inherit the throne. He didn't want him to go off and become a, a spiritual seeker. So he, he tried to keep him very happy and contented and uh, to keep him from seeing anything unpleasant or anything that might give rise to thoughts of renunciation. So he had a, a very cushy early life. He would have been given the best education and training in all of the, the arts and things befitting a prince. And a wife was found for him. Probably they were married when they were quite young. Uh, he wouldn't have had any choice about all of this. It would have just been what you do. But there came a point in his life where he experienced what is called in, an, in the allegorical tale of this kind of thing, uh, the call to destiny or the call to awakening. And in the sort of more archetypal mythological story, this call to awakening came in the form of the heavenly messengers, which I know you're all familiar with this story, probably. I'll tell it in brief. It said that he left the palace on, on four occasions when he hadn't really gone out into the, the surrounding area and that the, the devas, the gods arranged for these, him to see these four sites, uh, an old person, a sick person, a corpse, and, a, and then finally a renunciate uh, wandering spiritual seeker and he had supposedly never seen aging sick or a dead body and he asked his chariot driver and each time that he went out what's wrong with this person and he was told well that's a an old person that's a sick person that's a corpse and and he was made aware of the fact that this was in store for him that no one escaped these things and then the renunciate was for him a symbol of a possibility of some answer to uh, some fundamental question of what, what life is about then if we're all subject to these, these uh, laws of aging and sickness and death. And in the suttas, when, when the, in the Buddha's words, when he said he describes this in terms of reflections, three thoughts or reflections that he had. And he said when he reflected on these truths, then the vanities of youth and health and life left him, that he no longer thought that he would somehow live forever or had vanity about these things. And then he later con contemplated these understandings this way. He said, this is him speaking to the bhikkhus after his enlightenment. Bhikkhus, before my awakening, while I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, to death, sorrow, and defilement, I saw what was likewise subject to these things. 
And then I reflected, why do I, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilements, seek that which is also subject to this? Suppose I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage, Nibbana. So it was, it was through the deep contemplation of, of these really basic fundamental questions, existential questions of life, you know, the wondering, well, what's the point? What's life all about if I'm just going to get old and sick and die? You know, is there something beyond this? Is there more to life than just this? And all of us here in the room tonight have experienced some form of this kind of call to awakening, this call to destiny. We wouldn't come and spend time here on retreat. There's some sense of wondering about what life is, what's the meaning of life, and a dissatisfaction with maybe the conventional ways of looking at things, the conventional offerings and strategies for finding happiness and success. So we've all had some call in this way. And so this was followed by what's, what's sometimes called the great renunciation. And so in his case, it led to his decision to leave home, to leave the palace and his familiar surroundings, this life of ease, to let go of the con- conventional values that he was raised with and the conventional ways of seeing and understanding This is what he said about that time. He said, before awakening, while I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, I reflected, confining is the household life, a path of dust. Going forth to homelessness is wide open. It is not easy living in a house to lead the religious life completely fulfilled and purified, as polished as mother of pearl. Suppose I were to shave off my hair and beard clothe myself in ochre robes, and go forth from home into homelessness. So for him, especially, I think living in the palace there and with all of the the trappings of that life, he felt that he had to make this really uh, great external renunciation, this decision to leave that and leave it all behind. And he saw that for him it wouldn't be easy, maybe not even possible to live the life of a spiritual seeker staying in that, in those surroundings, in his familiar surroundings. And sometimes when we come to a spiritual life, we, we do need to make some kind of external change. Sometimes this is necessary for us. And it was true for me in a way. I remember I, when I first came to practice, I went to a retreat and it was this whole new possibility that opened up. And it came at a time in my life when conditions were good in terms of I just had closed down a business I was involved in. and I had no, no relationships that were really keeping me where I was living. And I wanted to, to do more practice and come and do a longer retreat. And uh, actually, I was in California, and I wanted to come to IMS and sit the three-month retreat. And my housemate pretty much told me if I was going to leave, I had to move out. I couldn't, I wanted to keep my, I wanted to hedge my bets and keep my place, but it wasn't possible at that time. 
But more important than any external renunciation that one might make, there's an internal kind of renunciation that comes when we turn towards this spiritual life in a wholehearted way. And the, the way that the conventional values that we mostly have been raised in in this culture, at least for most of us, I think, they're based so much on the idea of getting and having. And we measure our worth by what we have and all that we've managed to get. And our language that we use reflects this in a way, reflects this attitude. You know, and we have all of our possessions. We have a house and we have a car and we have relationships and we have our body and our mind and we have our knowledge and our, all our degrees, our education. We have all kinds of experiences in life. And then we wind up defining ourselves by what we have and what we've managed to get. But this way of valuing our life is in a way, uh, it's dangerous, it's fraught with peril because eventually we're going to be parted from everything that we have. And the things we have are going to get old and they're gonna lose their new sheen and finally they're gonna be gone and then what do we have? What are we left with? So for the, the prince, Prince Siddhartha, and for all of us, to some extent at least, there is a, a real questioning of some of the traditional values based on having and getting that we have been conditioned by. And this looking to what might be able to be found in terms of a deeper value in life. Maybe there's another way, another possibility, another strategy for happiness. And so there is a radical shift that happens as our practice unfolds and deepens. That's subtle, but it's very profound. And we start letting go of life in terms of having experience. And we settle more into a relationship with life of being. And we start to see this directly in, in just in our moment to moment experience. And the difference between having my thoughts, and my feelings, and just settling into the flow, the awareness of the flow of changing sensations and changing phenomena, changing mental activities, and the sense, shifting sensations of the material elements as they just unfold and do their thing. And in the one case, we're identified with experiences as I, as mine, as something that's happening to me. And in the other case, we simply are this unfolding process. And it's not that there's anyone having these experiences or no one to whom it is all happening. And this shift really is, is a profound one and it really opens the door to the practice. So when the, the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisatta, decided to leave home, and in his case, this resulted in a journey of many years. And at this point, he was known as the ascetic Gotama. And he began his quest by seeking the foremost teachers in that area at that time. He said this, I, thus gone forth, striving after what is good, searching for the incomparable excellent path to peace, 
approached Alara Kalama and said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to live the religious life in this teaching and training. And so he was accepted into that community and he, he did the practice and he soon very quickly mastered it. He said, I reflected, this teaching does not conduce to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to higher knowledge, to awakening, nor to Nibbana, but only to the attainment of the sphere of nothingness, that is to the seventh jhana. So that's the, the practice he was given was a concentration practice. And it took him to the, the seventh jhana. That's what that teacher knew. And these practices were very well known and, and uh, common in India at that time. And apparently he was, he was a great student and the, the teacher, Alara Kalamas, invited him to lead the community on an equal footing to share the leadership. But he decided that it wasn't going to lead to the end of the path. It didn't lead to where he wanted to get. And so he left and he went to another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta. And he, he taught him up through the eighth jhana, the eighth attainment, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. And again, he was really an adept student. He mastered it, uh, decided that it wasn't going to lead him to Nibbana to awakening. And in this case, he was offered to take over leadership of the community. He was so good at it. Um, but he saw that these practices, while they were very useful, in and of themselves, they did not lead to liberation. So then he embarked on a six-year-long period of practicing these very extreme austerities on his own. Um, these were practices that were well-known and still practiced in India a lot. You find people doing quite uh, intense ascetic practices there. They were practices that were attempting to subdue the ego through mortification of the flesh and through forcibly subduing the mind. Here's the description, abbreviated description of, of one of the practices he undertook. He said, I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. Then, as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind, and sweat ran from my armpits as I did so. And though tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established, Yet my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was, exhaust, I was exhausted by the painful effort. But such painful feelings as arose in me gained no power over my mind. And then I thought, suppose I practice the meditation that is without breathing. And I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my mouth and nose. And when I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming from my ear holes, as there is, is a loud sound when a smith's bellows are blown. So then he decided, well, that's not enough. I'm going to try stopping all in and out breaths, even that stuff coming out of my ears. And he said, when I did so, violent winds racked my head as if a strong man were splitting my head with a, open with a sharp sword. As if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head and violent winds carved up my belly 
and there was a violent burning as a fire being roasted over a pit of live coals. So he, he, he didn't hold back <laughs> with these uh, practices. And he, he tried going naked and dressing in all kinds of different clothings, he, clothing made of hemp and of funeral shrouds and rags that were thrown away and tree bark and cloth made of head hair wool and animal wool and even apparently a robe made of owl's wings. Um, I don't know where he would have gotten those owl's wings. <laughs> But that was an ascetic practice. He practiced pulling out his hair and head hair and beard, or squatting continuously, or standing continuously, or sleeping on a bed of spikes, sleeping in a charnel ground, which is where bodies from people who were families that were too poor for a cremation, they were just placed somewhere to rot, and he would sleep there using bones of the dead as a pillow. And at one point then he decided he would starve himself and eat less and less. He said, I thought, suppose I take very little food, say a handful each time, whether it is bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup. And I did so. And as I did this, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. My limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. The projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads and my ribs jutted out like the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. And if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone. And if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin, for my belly skin cleaved to my backbone. It's said that he finally got to the point where he was eating one grain of rice a day. And uh, they, they make images, sculptures, and paintings of the emaciated Buddha. You can get them in, in uh, Asia. And they're quite intense. He's matted hair and bearded. And, and you can see his spine from the front side. And there's something for all of us to consider in these kinds of stories, of these extreme practices, and the ways that we may go too far in finding the balance of right effort in our own practices. Sometimes we, it's almost as though we have to make a little too much effort in order to find what's right effort. So he practiced these extreme austerities to the point where he was really near death from starvation and deprivation. And at that point, he realized that it just wasn't leading anywhere. And he thought this, he said, whatever a monk or Brahmin has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now, painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, it can equal this but not exceed it. But by this severe austerity, I've not attained any superior human condition worthy of the noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to awakening? And then I remembered a time when my father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires and secluded from unprofitable things. And at that time I had entered upon an abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. And I thought, might that be the way to awakening? And then there came the recognition that this was the way. 
So he realized then that, that these extreme practices weren't going to do the trick. But he also just realized that he couldn't practice this other way of meditating, this more moderate way, when he was so weak. And so he decided to, to take some solid food. And at that time, there were five ascetics who were practicing with him. Although from the description, it sounds like their practice was to wait around hoping that he would have a breakthrough and tell them about it. Uh, maybe they were egging him on a bit. And so uh, the, the Gotama said, as soon as I ate solid food, some boiled rice and bread, these five bhikkhus were disgusted and they left me saying, the monk Gotama has become self-indulgent. He has given up the struggle and reverted to luxury. And so they dismissed him as a slacker and they split. And uh, so at this point in his story, in his journey, this is where he came to this final great struggle, which culminated in his enlightenment. And it's a familiar story to all of us. But I'm going to tell it because it's part of what I'm doing tonight. So he had regained some strength by eating. In some stories, it's said that he was offered his first solid food by a woman named Sujata. And near Bodh Gaya, there's a, a ruin that's said to have been where Sujata offered him a ruin of a, of a shrine said to be where this woman, Sujata, offered him some milk rice. So he got stronger from eating and he decided that he wouldn't do these extreme practices anymore. And so he found a suitable place in the shade of a pipal tree at a place called Uruvela on the banks of the Neranjara River. And pipal trees are a kind of fig that grow very huge and they give beautiful shade. Ficus religiosa is their name. I think that's great. They were named, their Latin name is, comes from the fact that the Buddha sat under them. And they're revered all over that part of the world. They, they put resting platforms under these trees. And so he sat down there and he made this vow, which I think I read one of the other nights recently, he said, let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. Yet there shall be no ceasing of energy until I've attained whatever can be won by human strength, human energy, and human effort. And so then in the, in the mythical story of, of this final struggle that he undertook there when he made this determination not to get up, it's said that he was attacked by all of the armies of Mara, Mara being the personification of the defilements. Another way of putting this would be to say that he experienced the worst possible multiple hindrance attack that you could get. And so he was assailed by the armies of Mara. And in the first, at first, it was uh, Mara came with a thousand hands, each one holding a different weapon. And uh, so there's this incredible barrage of missiles and numberless torments of every possible kind that were unleashed. And it's said that these were all transformed into beautiful flowers due to the purity and strength of his determination. And when this failed, Mara then decided he would, he would seduce the Buddha by appealing to every kind of desire and lust and longing that he might have. And 
So he conjured up incredible visions of possible pleasures of body and mind, and, and still the great being's mind was not moved. And then finally, his last tactic was to assail the Buddha with doubt and questioned who he thought he was, what right he had to be there. And that's the point when this famous gesture that's shown on this sculpture here behind me, where the Buddha to be, the Bodhisatta, reached down and touched the earth, asking the earth to bear witness to his, his right to be there. And it's said that the ground shook in response. And when this happened, Mara was vanquished and disappeared with his tail between his legs. And it might be that the idea for us of making a vow like this and, and then enduring such an attack might be a little hard to relate to on a personal level. But there's a way in which every time we come and sit down to meditate, there's a way in which it's, we're sitting under the Bodhi tree also. And when we sit, sooner or later, we come to the edge of what we're willing to be with. We come to the edge of what we think we can take. I remember in my first long retreat, deciding I would sit without moving for an hour, which was a huge thing for me then. And, and I, thought I, I thought I was going to die before the hour. I was just, it was as though I was gritting my teeth and sweat pouring down, waiting, praying for the bell to ring. And, um, you know, it was a very intense experience at that time. And I really felt like, oh, every moment, I can't take this, I can't take this. But we sit down and we do the best we can and, and we think we can't take it, but then we can take it and we persist. And then the boundaries of what we're willing to be with expand and grow. So it said on the night of his awakening, the Buddha sat through the night, what are called the three watches of the night. And that his, his awakening progressed through three phases in each of these watches. And so in the first watch, he directed his mind to the knowledge and recollection of his own past lives. This is how he describes it. He said, I recollected my manifold past lives. That is to say, one birth, two, three, four, five births, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 births through ages of world contraction and ages of world expansion, many ages of world contraction and expansion. And I was there so named of such a race with such an appearance, such food, such experience of pleasure and pain, such a life term and such passing away, and so on and so on through these countless lifetimes of wandering in samsara. And then in the second watch of the night, it said that he inclined his mind to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of other beings. And he saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, happy and unhappy in their destination. And I understood how beings pass on according to their actions, how beings fare according to their kamma. And he saw how through ignorance, beings created lives of suffering. 
And then in the third watch of the night, he saw in the deepest possible way the nature of dukkha, the nature of suffering and the cause, the origin of it, and the end, the cessation of dukkha and the path, the way leading to the end of dukkha. So his insight was into the Four Noble Truths. And then just as dawn was breaking with the rising of the morning star, he realized full awakening, the end of craving, of all craving and desire, all attachment. There came the knowledge, it is liberated. Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What was to be done is done. And there is no more of this to come. And it's said that the first words that he uttered following this, the enlightenment experience, are these famous lines that are now found in the Dhammapada. You could say this was the Buddha's enlightenment poem. And he said, seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through rounds of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down and your ridgepole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed Nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So it said that after this, after this awakening, after his enlightenment, he spent the next few weeks meditating in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree. And he had the insights into dependent origination and other parts of his teaching. And at the end of this period, he reflected on the possibility of teaching. And initially he was disinclined to do this. He said, he thought this, this Dhamma I have attained is subtle, profound, and hard to see, hard to discover. If I tried to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough of teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those that live in lust and hate. And it's said that a Brahma god named Sahampati appeared at this time, he appeared more than once, but uh, finally he appeared and he said these famous lines. He said, let the blessed one teach the Dhamma for there are beings with but little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma and some of them will gain final knowledge of the Dhamma. And so the Buddha became convinced that this, this possibility was true and that there were people who might understand and, and so moved by compassion for beings who he saw were trying their hardest to be happy, but were doing the very thing that caused them to suffer, he decided he would teach. And so he thought, well, who shall I teach first? And his first two teachers came to mind and he thought, oh, they'll, they've had but little dust in their eyes for a long time. They'll be good students. But then he, he thought of teaching them and he was either informed by the devas or he used his, his vision to see and he discovered that his first teacher, Alara Kalama, had died one week earlier and his second teacher, 
Ramaputta had died just the night before. And uh, he said, oh, they, they would have been good students. They would have understood. So then he thought of this group of five ascetics. And uh, he, the ones who had been attending him earlier. And he, he thought, well, I'll, they'll, they'll be good candidates. And so he surveyed the world with his, his all-seeing eye and saw that they were dwelling near Benares in a place called the Deer Park at Isi Patana. It's also known, known as the resort of the seers. And uh, nowadays it's called Sarnath near, near Varanasi. And so he set out to wander there, wander by stages. They always say wander by stages. I like that. So it takes a while. It's a long walk from Bodh Gaya. And his first encounter along the road up to Gaya was not that auspicious. And he met up with a monk named Upaka. And Upaka was, at first, he was impressed. And he said this, upon seeing the Buddha, he said, friend, your faculties are serene. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Under whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? Or whose Dhamma do you confess? And the, the Buddha gave him a, a fairly lengthy reply, which didn't go over too well. Uh, he started this way, he said, I am an all-transcender, all-knower, unsullied by all things, renouncing all, by cravings ceasing, freed. And this I owe to my own wit. To whom should I concede it? I have no teacher, and my like exists nowhere in the world. And uh, he continued in that vein for a while. Um, apparently, it was a bit much for Upaka. Um, and the Upaka replied, May it be so, friend and shaking his head, departed by a side road. So Upaka kind of missed a, <laughs> missed a chance there. <laughs> but uh, it was just more than he could take. <laughs> so eventually the Buddha did reach Isipatana, the deer park there. And the group of five ascetics saw him coming, and initially they weren't inclined to receive him that well. And, you know, they said, well, here comes that slacker Gotama. He's given up the struggle and reverted to luxury. We ought not to pay homage to him or rise up to greet him or receive his bowl and outer robe. Still, a seat can be prepared. Let him sit down if he likes. But then as he got closer, they saw he looked pretty good. And he had that glowing countenance and the serene features that Upaka saw. And so they couldn't keep this pact to uh, be dismissive and they they did receive him with a bit more respect. And then he offered to teach them, but they still, they weren't convinced. They thought, well, he looks pretty good. But, and they said, well, even with hardship, privation, and mortification, you didn't achieve any particular distinction. Now that you are self-indulgent, have given up the struggle and reverted to luxury, how will you have achieved anything? But eventually he managed to convince them. And he said, friends, have you ever known me to speak like this before? And they said, well, no. So then he, he taught them and he gave his, the first discourse, which is the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. The Pali is such a great language, Dhammachaka Pavatana. Plenty of vowels and things in there. I love the sound of it. So this is the discourse setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And in this discourse, he taught the middle way he started out teaching the middle way between these extremes of 
of self-mortification and the extremes of, of the pers- in pursuit of sense pleasures. And he taught the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. And it's said that one of the five ascetics, the Venerable Kondanya, said that during this first discourse while he was listening that he realized the first stage of enlightenment. And it's described this way. And the stainless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in the Venerable Kondanya thus. All that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. And this is the classic description of the realization of stream entry of the first stage of enlightenment that's found throughout the Pali Canon. I love this description because it has a a beautiful poetic quality, but it also points to this simplicity. There's this delightful simplicity and the the understanding that it points to all that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. So the Venerable Kondanya, what he saw then is that that which is born is subject to change, to aging, decay, and death. And there's nothing complex or difficult in this. This is just seeing the nature of things. And that which is born has aging and death as a natural result. This is the law of nature. And this truth surrounds us everywhere all the time. We just have to look around us. We look in nature. It's, nature is telling us this constantly. If we look in our own bodies and minds, we see this happening over and over throughout the day. This truth is always staring us in the face if we are willing to look at it, to let it in, to actually see. And so when the stainless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose for the Venerable Kondanya, it wasn't that he attained some special state. He just saw things as they really are, simply. You could say that he let go of a wrong way of seeing. He let go of a misperception. He let go of wrong view, and right view arose in him spontaneously, naturally as a result of this. But the truth that he saw was always there, already there didn't come into being just in that moment so he could realize it. We don't have to somehow create special conditions so that we can realize this truth. It's always available to us. And we don't come to this by getting something but it's, we come to it by letting go, letting go of seeing in the wrong way. I have a teacher, happens to be a monk. He's, he's good with one-liners. And he once said, we're all swimming in Nibbana with our faces pushed up against the Buddha, but we just don't see it. And it's true, we're all all of us always swimming in Nibbana. We're always swimming in the unconditioned. It couldn't possibly be any other way. We don't bring it into being by creating special conditions. Some 
perfect time and then, then we'll be able to realize it. Every moment contains everything we need for this realization. This is good news. You know, every moment is complete in this way. We have what we need. We just have to let it in. We just have to look. And so this wheel of the Dhamma that the Buddha set in motion, it's almost 2,600 years ago now. It's been rolling along since then. Rolled across all of Asia rolled across the ocean and rolled here to the forest refuge. It's available to us here tonight. Kind of amazing to think of it in that way over the centuries. These teachings coming to us and they're available to us. Tonight we can sit under the full moon like the Buddha did on the night of his awakening. Nowadays, it's the evening star is up, not the morning star, but it'll do. Hmm. So I'll stop here. I'll just offer one short Pali chant to close tonight. It's quite a well-known one. And then I'll tell you the English translation of it. It's just four lines, so you can take it. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upajitva Te sang upasamo suko. All formations are truly impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Having arisen, they must cease. Their complete stilling brings the greatest happiness. So we can sit quietly together for a couple of minutes and then I'll, I'll ring the bell and we can chant the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.